and the rest of it just discard or reflect on or whatever you like, actually. <laughs> and tonight I'd like to give uh, a talk about some very fundamental Buddhist teachings um, about freedom and the way it is or the basic laws of, that govern this world and this human incarnation. Um, and I have too much material and too many stories, so I wore my work shirt because it's Labor Day, right? <laughs> and I'm, you know, this is my job, so I gotta do it, you know. And I'm, I'm, we'll see how it goes, basically. Um, and I want to honor that it's Labor Day. In certain Zen monasteries, before you take the meal, you do this beautiful chant of 52 labors brought this food, the labor of the earthworms and the ants and those who plant the seeds and those in a sweaty bandana who pick the lettuce and those who drive the trucks and stock the stores and bake and cook and, you know, the labors of the rain clouds and the earth herself and so forth. Um, so it's Labor Day. Um, and right livelihood, I'll talk about just a little bit as a start, is a part of the path of enlightenment. To live an enlightened or a wise life means that the work we do, which is a big part of our human existence, first doesn't harm other beings. So right livelihood doesn't include selling weapons and drugs and so slavery and so forth. But more fundamentally, it means to take the work that we do and offer it um, as, the, as the gift of our spirit. Thomas Merton puts it this way, and he was a very, very successful uh, writer or Christian mystic. He said, if you write for God or the gods, you will reach many men and women and bring them joy. And if you write for men and women, you may make some money and may give someone a little joy and you make a noise in the world for a little while. And if you write for your own self-promotion, you can read what you yourself have written and after 10 minutes you'll be so disgusted you wish you were dead. <laughs> um, so, um, there's a kind of deep intelligence in what he talks about, which is not the writing itself, but the spirit within which we write. Or that famous and kind of common old description of this person visiting uh, one of the old cities in France um, where uh, he encountered a stone yard and people working on, you know, chiseling on stone. And the first person was asked, you know, what are you doing here? And he said, oh, in a really weary voice, my job is to cut these stones and to break them into these smaller pieces and shape them. I do it all day long, kind of a drag. And then he went to the second person and said, you know, what are you doing here? And the second person said, oh, my job is to cut these stones and by doing this I provide for my family and I get money for the education of my children and I've made a beautiful home and I'm happy to be doing this. And then ask the third person, ran across somewhere in that stone yard, pounding away, what are you doing in this great beaming smile? I'm building a cathedral and it will take a thousand years and this is my stone in it. 
So you can hear right livelihood on one side is non-harming, but on the other side, it's remembering something that you know, that you were born knowing, and that sometimes gets taken away in our culture and education of what really matters. And of course, what really matters is um, the spirit within which we do our life and our work. Um, and, uh, okay, one more story, since we're starting with this. David was an internist who worked as a physician on the AIDS ward in the early 1980s at San Francisco General. Years ago, during the worst of the AIDS epidemic, before the protease inhibitors and all the modern drugs were available, and almost all the patients who were admitted to his service died. Many of them were young men quite close to his own age, people whose lives mattered deeply to him. Um, and after uh, a time, he became quite overwhelmed by a sense of futility and felt this way throughout most of the years of his residency. Um, now, David also happens to be trained as a Buddhist, um, and it's been his practice to offer prayers for his patients. When each patient dies, even now, he lights candles on his altar at home and keeps them burning for 49 days. And for the whole time he was at the general, he prayed for each dying young man, put a candle on the altar. And now yet years afterward, he was in a group with some other physicians and he tells this story somewhat uh, with a different kind of quality, not so resigned, um, but more with wonder. He says perhaps the reason he was there was not what he thought. He'd expected to serve by curing and rescuing his patients as physicians do, but when their problems proved resistant to his whole modern medical expertise, he felt useless. But maybe he was not meant to be there to cure people. Perhaps he was there so that no one would die without someone to pray for them. Perhaps he had served every one of his patients flawlessly. So this really asks us what is the spirit that we bring to the work that we do. Um, can it be an act of service? Can it be an act of awakening? And you can't really measure the outcome so much, but you can measure your heart. Um, and it, one of the great sorrows in the world is when people can't work. I mean, now we're in this, the Great Recession, you know, but basically it's a terrible economic time. And a lot of people that I know and many of you know, I'm sure, can't find work. Um, and it's as if you're born with a certain cargo in your ship, you're incarnated, um, and you have to deliver it. Um, and uh, if you can't give your gifts, um, it's a terribly sad thing. And to give your gifts doesn't mean, okay, I have to be a rock star with a microphone or be in the movies or all these kind of glam things that, you know, middle schoolers want to be or something like that. You know how that is. Um, remember what Martin Luther King said, you know, if a person sweeps, a, sweeps streets for a living, they should sweep like Raphael painted paintings, like Michelangelo cut marble, 
like Shakespeare wrote poetry, like Beethoven composed music. So it's not about the particular thing that you do, but to take that with some dignity and some beauty and some grace and feel that there's a freedom to, to your spirit no matter what's given to you. And if you're given something that's unsatisfactory in certain ways and it's all that you can find, then after hours teach English to, you know, immigrants or, you know, work in an animal shelter or do something that your heart calls you to do and give in the world. Not because you're supposed to, but because you need to somewhere. You need to from the soul level, if you will, from the spirit, because that's really what right livelihood is, is to give something beautiful. And each person is born with something beautiful in them that wants to be given. I remember, um, yeah, working with these guys from Homeboy Industries, which is old, you know, gang members coming out of the gangs in Watts in East Los Angeles. And um, anyway, I've been part of this group of people that works with these guys. And one of the best books written, this new book called Tattoos on the Heart, um, Father Greg Boyle, who started Homeboys Industries, talks about working with this particularly exasperating homie he calls, um, named Sharky. He said he's released from juvie for the fourth time. He'd gotten in another fight, lost touch with his family, and now he's back at Homeboy and he wants to work. And um, at first, I want to just chew him out for his posturing and his colossal stupidity. And then I look in his eyes and I decide to switch my strategy and catch him in the act of doing the right thing. I can see I've been too harsh on him and exacting, and he is, after all, trying the best he can, given where he came from. And I tell him how heroic he is, getting out and wanting to come back and work at Homeboys and get a decent job, and how the courage he now exhibits in transforming his life far su surpasses the hollow bravery of his barrio past. I tell him he's a giant among men, and I mean it. I look in his eyes. Sharky seems to be thrown off balance by all this and silently stares back at me for a long time. And then he says, damn, Father G, I'm going to tattoo that on my heart. <laughs> and there is some way in which we are born knowing this, and we forget it. And spiritual life, if you will, in meditation, is to take the time to quiet the mind, and listen to who we really are. Listen to that freedom of spirit and that nobility, which is called Buddha nature, that is born in every being. What is freedom? Buddhism teaches, offers this path to freedom. The freedom of Nelson Mandela coming out of 27 years in Robben Island prison with such magnanimity and graciousness to the freedom of Aung San Suu Kyi, who's still under house arrest, and yet, after 17 years, will not leave Burma, even though she could. She said, I won't go away, and I will not hate you, but I will not go away. I will stay here. And her courage illuminates 50 million people or more. Freedom. Pema Chodron puts it this way. She says, Where are you, Pema? Mm -hmm. 
It's hard to know whether to laugh or cry at the human predicament. Here we are with so much wisdom and tenderness and without even knowing it, we cover it over to protect ourselves from insecurity. Although we have the potential to experience the freedom of a butterfly, we mysteriously prefer the small and fearful cocoon of the ego, of the small sense of self. But it's not who we really are. And when we find this freedom, it's both the freedom to be, to be who we are, and also the freedom to serve, to tend, to care for the world, because it turns out that that's what we're here for, really. And if you can't give and you can't love, then you're not actually going to be happy. and You're not going to fulfill what it is to be a human being. And as you get quiet, the sense of that longing to be connected grows. So these are the different sides of enlightenment, if you will, like the in and out breath. One part is to learn how to quiet ourselves and really touch what matters in ourselves, to see what's true, the way things are. And then in the midst of that, the next part of the breath is to then extend ourselves into the world. Now, when you start to meditate, you know, there are various kinds of trainings. Become aware of your breath, be aware of your steps, and walking meditation start to become mindful. And people often think that meditation and mindfulness is then a way to fix yourself. It's too late. You were born, right? So it's not really a self-improvement game. I mean, it's fine. You can let go of your tensions. There's some deep healing that can take place. You can release stuff in your body. You can feel the emotions and traumas that you have, and they unwind. So there is some of that. But the point of meditation isn't really um, self-improvement. It's something much deeper, which is to see the way things are in human incarnation and to remember who you are in the midst of it all. So a story again. One young man went to a Zen master, some kind of master, and after practicing for a time went off on his own with the instructions and faithfully decided to send a letter to the master giving an account each month of his spiritual progress. In the first month he wrote, I now feel an expansion of consciousness and experience of oneness with the universe. The master glanced at the note and threw it away. <laughs> Next month, this is what the letter said, I finally discovered the holiness that is present in all things. The master seemed vaguely disappointed. <laughs> A month later, the disciple enthusiastically explained, the mystery of the one and the many has been revealed to my wondering gaze. The master yawned. Two months later, a letter arrived. No one is born, no one lives, no one dies, for the self is in illusion. The master threw up his hands in despair because each letter was asking for a response. Is this it? <coughs> is this it? Is this it? After that, a month passed, then two, three, five, and a whole year. The master thought now it was time to remind the disciple of his duty to keep him informed of his spiritual progress. And the disciple wrote back, who cares what you think? When the master read those words, a great look of satisfaction spread over his face. Thank God he got it at last. 
because all those things are available to you and they're beautiful and they're important, the sense of oneness, the connection, the sense of emptiness and fullness, the compassion that comes. Um, but it has to be your experience and it's not for anyone else. It's for your soul or, or the depth of your being. And so when we stop to meditate, it's not about our effort. You don't become free through your effort. You become free from remembering who you are, from knowing that you are already free, that you were born free, and seeing the way the world is. So you start to examine your experience with mindfulness with a kind of innocence. The phrase is to sit as a courteous audience, and then you look at your mind, oh my God, right? Or you notice your body, oh dear, right? But you do it from the space of awareness as if you were in the theater and you're, this is the courteous audience. Well, here's this incarnation. How does this look, you know, to you? And the space of awareness is different than almost, it's different than anything else. Because anything else is the content of awareness. Thoughts, feelings, sensations, all these things that come. It's like you're in the movie theater and all these things come on the screen, right? And for a while you get lost in the plot. There's the romance and the comedy and the action movie and, you know, the war film and, and so forth. But then at a certain moments somebody's kind of chewing their popcorn too loud and you shift in your seat and you realize, oh, we're in the movie. The space of awareness knows what arises in the screen of experience. It's the witnessing, but it's not lost in it. Instead, there's a open, balance, timeless, ease, um, a deep knowing. Um, it's really seeing with the eyes of the Buddha. Oh yes, this too is part of this incarnation. There's a wisdom to it. So you rest in the space of awareness. And then in this mysterious incarnation, in your human form, nobody knows quite how you got here, but here you are on this planet Earth, right? In the middle of all these galaxies, you got here. And you stuff dead plants and animals in one hole of the incarnation and glug them through the tube out to the other end every day, right? It's really bizarre. It is. And you're in there, sort of, right? Or it's in you or something, whatever. Um, and so you sit. And what you start to notice if you sit with this courteous attention, what you begin to experience is what the Buddha called the five rivers. Uh, the river of sense experience, that there's changing sounds. You can hear the crickets and my words. And the river of sounds, the river of sights and colors are changing. Sense experience, if you close your eyes, the body's a river of sensation. So the world that we know through our senses is always changing. Then the second river is the river of feelings. Have you noticed? Happy, sad, joyful, pleasure, displeasure, apathetic, antagonistic, antsy, appreciative, alarmed. And I have this whole dictionary of 500 feelings, right? So many of them. I was just doing the A's. <laughs> Angry, apoplectic, appreciative, argumentative, all of them, right? So there's this river of changing feelings and moods. There's the river of senses, river of moods, the river of perceptions. 
that you see things in a certain way, you recognize that's a person, that's a woman, that's a man, that's a dog, that's a house. There's some way in which we organize the world, and it's always changing, because you recognize from this moment, and then you change your angle, and the perception's a little different. And then there's a river of thoughts. And if you don't know that, all you have to do is sit and meditate, as we did for half an hour, and it just plays through. The mind secretes thoughts the way the salivary gland secretes saliva. It just kind of pours through, doesn't it? Thoughts, images, words. And then there's the river of consciousness. And they're always changing, have you noticed? In fact, when Zen Master Suzuki Roshi was asked to sum up all of Buddhist teachings, he said in three words, not always so. This is another of the Buddhist teachings, that things are always changing and nothing can be repeated. Not a moment, not a day, nothing. And we can feel this. In the, tonight, it's the turning of the seasons, the beginning of the school year for certain people. You know, it's getting darker earlier. But it's not just the turning of the seasons, it's the lunar cycles and the breathing of the breath and the beating of the heart and the movement of the cerebrospinal fluid and the menstrual cycles and the stock market, in case you're interested in I mean, it's all the same, you know. And the turning of the galaxies. Everything expands and contracts and moves. We are a river. And civilizations, ancient Sumer and the Mayan and the Aztec civilization and the Portuguese, remember that one? That little country had a big empire at one point, not that long ago. Different Chinese dynasties and the Egyptians you know, and then there's the American Empire, which is not seeing its finest day at the moment, in fact. Um, come and go. And of course, we hope to find security in this. Day and night, pleasure and pain are changing all the time, gain and loss. Security through a bank account, security through relationship or job or whatever identity, but then you pick up the phone one day and it's the doctor who says, I think you have to come in, your test results are questionable, and everything you thought was secure isn't. And we spend $250 billion, a quarter of a trillion dollars on security devices and so forth in America, different kinds of security. But here is Helen Keller. She writes, security is mostly a superstition. It doesn't exist in nature, nor do children as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. But there's a different way to explain this with a story again. Because security sort of assumes that you could know, that you could predict things. A commuter hopped on a train at New York and told the conductor he was going out to Fordham. We don't stop at Fordham on Saturday, said the conductor, but I'll tell you what I'll do. As we slow down at Fordham Station, I'll open the door and you jump off. Because <laughs> we'll be going pretty slow. Just make sure you run along the train when you hit the ground or you'll fall. So at Fordham, the door opened, the commuter hit the ground running. Another conductor in the car following, seeing him open the door and pulled him in the train as it resumed speed. You're mighty lucky, buddy, said the conductor. The train doesn't stop at Fordham on Saturday. Okay, so. But it's the way it works. You know, you have your plans. 
how many people would say your life really worked out according to the plans that you made? Raise your hand. I mean, this is a fact, right? And then, then we think, well, it didn't go according to our fans' plans. It's a failure. We're a failure, something like that. And we live in a culture where everything's supposed to be the way it's supposed to be, and you get security. My friend Rodney Smith, who ran the hospice in Seattle for a lot of years, told me about a woman who was 95 years old who came into the hospice quite ill, getting close to death, and was complaining, why me? But that's because old age is a failure in this culture, isn't it? Like, you didn't do it right somehow. But this is the, this is the Buddha, his words. He says, few cross the river, many are stranded on this side. On the river bank, they run up and down. Free yourself from grasping, from attachment, and rejoice in freedom here and now. Become the light of freedom just where you are. So we have our plans. My teacher Ajahn Chah spoke about, um, he used to call it in Thai, the word was mainā, which means it's uncertain, isn't it? And he loved to answer questions with this phrase mainā. Basically, it's uncertain, isn't it? And you'd ask him about anything. You know? So you could ask him about enlightenment, ask him why monks did the, and he would smile and he'd say mainā, part of the time anyway, and then he would laugh. You know? Because it is uncertain, isn't it? And freedom is not about certainty in that way. The eyes of wisdom see that life is unfolding for us and we can tend it and care for it and direct it in certain ways, but mostly we have to see the way that it is. It's not about getting something that you hold on to. If that were so in meditation, you could sit and feel your breath and get more and more concentrated and then you would get samadhi, which means quite concentrated. And then there are beautiful samadhi states. Somebody came up and asked me about jhana states, which are states of very stable samadhi. And you breathe and you get to these states and there's a lot of light and luminosity and you think, okay, I have it. Now I got it. And you hold your breath, you know, or you stop breathing. But after a while, you get tired and you have to breathe again. And whatever state you have, even beautiful states like that, which can be quite lovely and, and in some way inspiring, they change. So it's not about holding your breath. And you notice even when you're trying to be really loving, which I know some of you do on occasion, sometimes a lot even, um, but you can get idealistic about it. I'm going to have my heart, you get this beautiful loving place. I'm going to have my heart open and just love all the time. But it doesn't work that way needs a vacation. And your heart, you'll notice, it opens and closes like, like, the, like the flowers that open under the sun. It does. And so if you get the idea, I'm going to rip it open and just, you know, those pictures of Hanuman or Jesus or whatever it is, you know. I mean, it, just doesn't, it doesn't seem to work that way. The point of meditation is to be with the reality of things the way they are, which is that they're uncertain and that they're not unfolding according to your grasping and your plan. And if you grasp a lot, you get what is called rope burn, right? It hurts. This is suffering, okay? The point is not to try to make it a certain way, to, but, be, but to discover 
that you can relax in this incarnation. The earth supports you when you're sitting and that you can rest in the space of awareness and not try to hold your breath or hold on to a state or judge things so much. Rather, it's an invitation to a gracious heart. You are invited into the gracious heart, which is your own wisdom, your own Buddha nature. Here's Mary Oliver. She writes these two lines, two sentences. For years and years, I struggled just to love my life. Half of spiritual practice in that one line. For years and years, I struggled just to love my life. And then the butterfly rose, weightless in the wind. Don't love your life too much, she said, and vanished into the world. And that's this paradox that T.S. Eliot wrote of teach us to care and not to care, allow us to love and care and tend this world, but not in the way of fear and confusion and attachment and aggression and anger that just makes it all the worse. This is called the gracious heart. And don't misunderstand that meditation means indifference. That's the near enemy to equanimity. True equanimity is balance in the midst of all things. Indifference is basically a state of fear. It doesn't mean being passive and detached. It's responsiveness, aligning yourself. It's like tending your garden. You can't pull the plants up. You can water them. You can, you know, take out the weeds. You can fertilize. Whether you tend your garden or your body or your schedule or your children or the crying need for justice in the world or those who are hungry, who don't have food when we have so much. I mean, it's such an amazing thing to have this kind of paradox of supermarkets full of food, of epidemics of obesity, you know, people on diets and then people who are terribly hungry. Um, And we feel it in our bodies. We know this somehow. So to sit quietly and find the gracious heart doesn't mean that you don't care. It means that you can respond rather than react. That you can honor each new day and see what's asked of you today. This from the Tao. There's a time for being ahead and a time for being behind. A time for being in motion and a time for being at rest. A time for being vigorous and a time for being exhausted. A time for being in danger. Sometimes danger is important. And if you don't know about that, you don't know any young men. Anything dangerous to do around here? I mean, it's part of humanity, right? And a time for being safe. The master sees things as they are without trying to control them. She lets them go their own way and resides at the center of the circle. In this way, she can tend to all things. So it doesn't mean that she doesn't tend, but you can feel the graciousness of living in the reality of a Nietzsche or change um, with a wise heart. So question for you, what is it in your life that's changing right now? So much. I mean, everything's changing, of course. Everything, that's my answer, right? But that's hard to accept if you reflect about it. Or what is it that's changed in the world that's hard to accept? And the first step is always the acceptance of it. Acceptance doesn't mean that you're going to, you know, leave it that way. If there's injustice, you see some suffering, 
The first step is to see it clearly. This is the way it is. And then you can respond. But what asks your seeing clearly that things have changed? And sense the possibility of resting, of seeing that with the eyes of a Buddha, which is your own true nature. This is the way that it is now. Now let me respond to it. This is actually the way that it is. And as you do, you can feel how your spirit becomes free. You can sense that you are free. You're free to respond, to know, to see what's true, and then to find your way of responding. And there comes mercy and care because we're connected. Now another aspect of the way it is, oh boy, I'm halfway through and nowhere near done, but whatever. Another aspect of the way it is, beside that things are changing, and if you want to live wisely, says the Buddha, um, stop. See the way things are from the eyes of the Buddha, from the heart of wisdom and compassion. Say, this is human incarnation. Joy and sorrow, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain. And we need not have that. And what does it mean to be gracious with pleasure and pain, with joy and sorrow? So the second aspect of the way that it is, not only is our life a river, but it's also in certain ways unsatisfactory, uncertain. This is called dukkha, disappointing. It's disappointing because sometimes you don't get what you want, Sometimes you get it and then it changes. Or sometimes you get what you don't want, right? And it stays for too long, right? It's true. Or you suffer because there's grief or loss or sickness or aging or death or uncertainty. But change is not really... Old age is, you know, if it's a defeat in this culture. It isn't actually. It's natural. Even in this society. But we like to pretend... Um, poem. A pin shall prick thy finger and thou shalt feel it not. Thy tooth shall be extracted and thou shalt be anesthetized. Thou shalt be bitten by a mad dog and injected with serum and the dog be put to death and neither of you feel any pain. Thou shalt pass a bundle of rags who cries give me a Quarter a dollar, I'm homeless, and thou shalt be anesthetized and pass on, and thou shalt sit in the antechamber of the hospital awaiting birth or death, no matter, and peruse the news of the world, and the pages shall offer into thine eyes famine in Central Africa, latest fashion bikini leaves no strap marks, <laughs> dioxin, diet cookbook, neo-Nazi outbreak, film star of the year, assassination of the year, and no one thing shall be worse and none better and thou shalt ingest them all with the same painless, smiling feeling of have a nice day. That the world goes to pieces or to pot or whatever word and um, should be so lucky. The world goes to someplace worse than pot. Um, and, um, and we watch it on television. And it's horrifying, actually. It is horrifying. But it's the culture, as Rita Mae Brown said, in America, the word revolution is now used to sell pantyhose. 
okay? We're in trouble, all right? And it's not that revolution is the only answer because there has to be an inner revolution as well as an outer or we just keep recycling the same revolution. The revolutionaries take over and they put the other people in prison. But whether it's Afghanistan, Israel, and Palestine, and I've been wearing my kafiyah, which came from a Palestinian friend, number of Palestinian friends, mostly because of all the racism and the, you know, Islamophobia that's out there. Um, uh, and there's so much fear-mongering. Um, you know, and there is this kind of suffering. There's tribalism and racism and continuing war and global warming and, you know, malaria and diseases and so forth. And we have to see these. And somehow we think that if we, you know, if we were to act right, that they would go away. But they don't, do they? Plato said, even only the dead know the end of war. That was, you know, 2,600 years ago. I'm sorry to tell you that. But I mean, we kind of think, well, then we'll, you know, it's not going to be there, but listen to Plato. And I don't in that way mean then to become, what's the right word? To give up, to not care at all. Instead, when you sit as the Buddha, you see the way things are and you stop running. And you see gain and loss and you see pleasure and pain, and you see your successes and your troubles. As someone said, even your misfortune is part of your belongings. And as you do, then your heart begins to open. Think of Lambi Yeshe, this wonderful teacher who got put in the ICU for terrible heart problems. He said, after 41 days, my mind was like that of an anti-god my body was like the lord of a cemetery and my speech like the barking of an old mad dog. After all these years of meditation, it was still a lot of suffering. Because it's what it is at certain times when you're sick or when the body falls apart. It's just the way that it is. But then you hear Martin Luther King and he says, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws, and we will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And there's a kind of dignity in simply seeing this is also part of incarnation and not being so afraid of it. Pleasure and pain and gain and loss. There's this deep compassion that comes and this from Pema Chodron, who writes, To move from aggression to loving-kindness can seem daunting, but we start with what's familiar. To cultivate loving-kindness, we have to find the tenderness that's there in ourselves or another that we already have. We touch in with gratitude or appreciation our current ability to feel goodwill. In a non-theoretical way, we contact the soft spot that she calls the word for bodhicitta, awakened heart. Whether we find it in the tenderness of feeling love or the vulnerability of feeling lonely is immaterial. If we can look for that soft, unguarded place in ourselves or another, it is always there. For instance, even in the rock hardness of rage, if we look below the surface of the aggression, we'll generally find fear. 
There's something beneath the solidity of anger that feels very raw and sore. And underneath the defensiveness is the broken-hearted, unshielded quality, the soft spot of bodhicitta. Rather than feel this tenderness, however, we tend to close down and protect ourselves against this discomfort. To awaken is to sit in the presence of it all. So it turns out, whether it's for ourselves or whether it's for the world that we love and care about, that the capacity to be present and bear the measure of sorrows and beauty that's given to you, which is formidable, that that is your gift. Elie Wiesel, the Nobel laureate, writes, suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how you use it. If you use it to increase the anguish of yourself or others, you are degrading, even betraying it. And yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can elevate human beings. God help us to bear our suffering well. So this is part of awakening, the way it is, is that incarnation involves almost unbearable beauty and the ocean of tears. It does. And to see and sit and awaken from your own Buddha nature is to see this and know it in a, a kind of fearless way. Fearless doesn't mean you won't be afraid. Fear is just fear. But it means the kind of courage that says, yes, I know this is true. I see the way things are. And when you do, when the Buddha looked out across the world with the eyes of compassion after his awakening, he began to weep. And the tears that rolled down his cheeks when they touched the earth, it said that they became the goddess Tara, the goddess of infinite compassion, who sits over here. Kuan Yin is another version of Tara. Um, because the Buddha saw beings everywhere wanting to be happy, but being so confused that they did the very things often that made more unhappiness. The rigidity, the fear, the confusion, the, you know, the blaming of others, the inability to bear one's own pain, so we project it on somebody else. Um, so we sit and start with the reality of the present. This is the way it is. It's like this without judging at first, you know, without making some project about it. I always or often use this uh, passage from the author Florida Scott Maxwell where she writes, no matter how old a mother is, she watches her middle-aged children for signs of improvement, <laughs> right? That there's some way you could sort of sneak that into your meditation and think, okay, I'm going to, you know, really improve myself. And you do in some ways. But it's not about that. It's really opening your heart to the world with its beauty and its misery and knowing that there is a freedom to be found in this. That this is the way to freedom. That inviolable freedom of Aung San Suu Kyi and Nelson Mandela is also your birthright. Eddie, Eddie Hillison, who writes, 
You must be able to bear your sorrow even if it seems to crush you. You will be able to stand up again, for human beings are so strong, and your sorrow must be an integral part of yourself. You mustn't run away from it. Do not relieve your feelings through hatred or seek revenge. Give your sorrow the space and shelter in yourself that is its due. For if everyone bears grief honestly and courageously, the sorrow that now fills the world will abate. That's an amazing thing to say, isn't it? So this is also what's asked of us. Or as Helen Keller says, the world is full of suffering and it is also full of the overcoming of it. That we have both those gifts just as we breathe in and breathe out. And an honorable practice of mindfulness and compassion then also begins to sense the third quality of the way things are. It's like gravity. There's pleasure and pain and gain and loss. It's changing. It's insubstantial. It's ungraspable. Is that you start to see the emptiness of it all, the selflessness of it all. And this requires some explanation because it's a funny language. Remember Heraclitus who said you cannot step into the same river twice? You can't meet the same person twice. When you meet your lover, your husband or your wife or your boss or your child, they're actually different each time in some way. And this is what Suzuki Roshi said, the goal of meditation practice is to keep your beginner's mind, to see this person anew, because they are new. They're not in any way quite the way they've ever been. And you can't claim them or own them or fix them. I mean, we do, but that's not the way things are. And it turns out you can't even do it for yourself as you start to pay attention. You start to look at your thoughts and you discover that your mind has a mind of its own. And the thoughts think themselves. And you can hardly stop them, right? And not only that, if the people near you could hear your thoughts, they would move away, right? <laughs> it's wild in there, right? And your feelings, your feelings feel themselves. <clears throat> and your breath breathes itself. I have a friend of mine who went up in the Himalayas to visit these Tibetan hermits <clears throat> who were on life retreat in caves doing compassion for the, you know, for the universe in their cave and got permission. This was a, a monk and a healer that I knew, a Westerner. Um, who was a doctor who got permission from the Dalai Lama to visit some of these hermits when they had their <clears throat> twice-a-year drop-off of food or whatever. And he said, I remember this one man who was just beatific and, you know, s- sat there and was obviously radiating compassion to the world. And I said, what is your practice? Um, you know, do you do breath practice? <laughs> and he just smiled and he said, the world breathes itself. You know? <laughs> and it does. The world breathes you. You don't. <clears throat> you don't have to breathe. <clears throat> and this is not a philosophy. This is not some idea you're supposed to take. But as you get quiet, you start to feel yourself as part of the river of change. <clears throat> you sense you have different roles. Sometimes you're the parent. Sometimes you're the child. Depends who you're with, right? Or the brother or sister or the boss or the, you know, the lover or the, you know, whatever the student or the teacher. And your sense of self is always changing. There is no fixed self. How's that? 
And in fact, nothing is fixed, as the Diamond Sutra says, thus shall ye think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, about to disappear. A flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, a dream. Suppose, said the Buddha, a man or woman who was not blind beheld the many bubbles on the Ganges as they floated along and watched and carefully examined them, and, and they would appear to them as empty, unreal, and insubstantial. In the same way does the meditator behold sense experiences of the body, sights and sounds, feelings, perceptions, thoughts, states of consciousness, and observing each carefully, examining they too appear insubstantial, empty, and void. They're there for a moment and they disappear. It's wild. Everything is trooping out of emptiness, to use Rumi's phrase, and doing its dance and disappearing. Shakespeare talks about it as a great theater, you know, and the dreams of it. The Ojibwe phrase that everyone knows, sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. When Thomas Merton went to visit um, this beautiful temple called Polonarua in Sri Lanka, he describes walking across this great grassy lawn that has some huge ancient trees on it, and then coming to the biggest marble Buddha's images that were that exist, I think, in Asia, even bigger than the Bamiyan ones that were blown up by the Taliban in Afghanistan. This enormous cliff that's carved out of marble, a seated Buddha and a reclining Buddha. And he says that they were the most alive pieces of art he'd ever seen, and wonderful. He said they seemed peaceful and empty. The silence of these extraordinary faces, great smiles, huge and subtle, filled with every possibility, rejecting nothing. The smiles of peace, not of emotional resignation, but a peace that is seen through every question, without trying to discredit anyone or anything, without refutation, that is seen the world appear out of emptiness, and that everything is connected, that is connected in emptiness, is also connected in compassion. And what this means, well, one of my teachers, uh, Nisargadot, said <clears throat> that when I became really still and awakened, I discovered that I was nothing, nothing separate from the rest of the world. Wisdom sees that I am nothing. Love sees that I am everything. And between these two, my life flows. Mm. The space of awareness, <clears throat> which is the invitation of mindfulness itself, the ground of being, to rest in the space of awareness, is to step out of time into the timeless. The question is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. And to sit in meditation is an invitation to step out of busyness and schedule, and all those thoughts will come. I sit in the morning and I have the thoughts about what I'm supposed to do later in the day, and 
Will I get them done? I have a little checklist. And at the end of the day, I sit in meditation and I can see which ones I've checked off and <clears throat> give myself grades, A minus or C plus or whatever, you know, failed on that one. Because <clears throat> that's what minds do. That's just what they do. But that's not who you are. That's just your mind, you know. It's like when Ramdas was asked about his relationship to Judaism, because he, as I, was born in a Jewish family, Jewish tradition. So, um, you know, and uh, did he done Jewish spiritual practice? He said he respected that, and somebody kind of kept pressing him about being Jewish, and, and then he said, well, you know, I'm only Jewish on my parents' side, right? <laughs> and there's something really liberating about that remark. Because you're not, you're not your conditioning. You have language and conditioning, but that's not the freedom that's fundamental to your spirit. And in a funny way, I, I kind of, if I, if I don't lose my thread, you're not even your mind. I mean, thank you. Or maybe better, no thank you, you know. <laughs> really, if you look. All the, because that's another form of conditioning. And to, to sit back and rest in the space of awareness is also to rest in the great heart of compassion. Again, from Kalu Rinpoche, he says, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know this or you forget this. And when you understand, you will see that you are nothing. Nothing substantial, nothing you can hold on to, always changing. You will see that you are nothing, and being nothing, you are everything. That is all. And there comes out of this a beautiful kind of trust. Hmm. Chan Master Shang Yen said, those who are suspicious will always be lonely. Um, or the third Zen ancestor says, to be enlightened is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. I need to say that twice more. Okay, To be enlightened is to not be anxious about the fact that things aren't perfect according to your standards. To be enlightened is to be without anxiety about the imperfection of the world. It is the damn way that it is. You know, and this does not mean that you're not called upon when we leave, you know, to work for justice, to feed those who are hungry, um, to love this earth, um, you know, just as that woman who gave this beautiful piece of land for the nuns said, I, I wanted to give some nuns to my land, you know. Um, to, to care for this earth, it's so beautiful. And when you get quiet, you realize that it's your earth. And not only that, um, that, that um, you are the Earth's you, <laughs> if I can say that. There's some way, so that, when, you know, you don't say when you stub your toe or you, you pick up something hot, oh, that poor hand, I think I'll take care of it, right? Because it got a little bit burnt, or that toe. You know, you pull it off the stove right away because there is a sense of connection to that. When you get still and when you can bear the measure of sorrows and beauty of the world, with an open heart, you realize that you are not separate from this world. 
and that you breathe the air of the rainforest not as an idea, but that this is your lungs. And so you get up from your meditation seat and the Buddha spent 45 years walking the dusty roads of India saying, please remember who you are. You can be free. You are free. Freedom is your birthright. And then live in this world with beauty, like Thomas Merton said where we started. Offer the beauty of your life to this world with grace, with graciousness, with ease. Now I should say at this point that I've, you know, maybe halfway done this talk. And that feels fine to me. You know, I've got to go with the flow, right? I'll finish it next week. Ha-ha. Let me see, how am I going to wind this up for tonight then? Rumi. Truly, he says, we live with mysteries too marvelous to be understood. How grass can be nourishing in the mouths of lambs. How rivers and stones are forever in allegiance with gravity, while we ourselves dream of rising. How two hands touch and the bonds will never be broken. And how people come from delight or the scars of damage to the comfort of a poem. Let me keep my distance always from those who think they have the answers. Let me keep company always with those who say, look and laugh in astonishment and bow their heads. The line from Mary Oliver. Oh, this isn't Rumi. This is Mary Oliver. Oh, thank you. Okay, because there's another. I had a Rumi poem. This is great. Thank you, Mary. All right. Could have been Rumi. Our modern Rumi. She's really Rumi incarnated. There another of her line where she says, I was a bride married to amazement. Hmm. Freedom is nowhere else. It's not in the Himalayas. It's not after long retreats. It's not from some special meditative states. They can be beautiful. And the Himalayas are really cool. I recommend a <laughs> walk in the Himalayas to anybody on this earth and so forth. But freedom is here. In the reality of the present, this moment, you are free. And you don't need special conditions. Conditions are good enough. They're perfect for the free heart. So tonight, in a way, is just a reminder, the first part of this talk. The next part is to talk about the gifts that come from these, each of these truths the gifts that come from the fact that everything changes, the gifts that come from the measure of sorrows of our life, the gifts that comes from, come from emptiness. You'll have to wait and see, right? It's like, who knows? Hmm. Just listening to the crickets. Aren't we lucky that we can?
I brought something tonight. I guess I'll show it. Maybe I'll do it next week, too, talking about freedom. Mm. It's a picture. I don't know. I'll hold it up. I don't know if you'll be able to see it from the back. But maybe the, one of the great sorrows in the world is simply not being able to give yourself, to give your love, to respond in some way with food or a listening heart or silence or art or some creative business, whatever your gifts are, to shine your heart into this world and to remind those around you of freedom so that their spirits are illuminated. The Buddha speaks of this freedom like the, like the full moon that, you know, that sails among the clouds. The clouds go by with this beautiful moon that just shines. So the picture I want to show when I was um, last year, whenever it was, visiting and doing a little bit of teaching in Palestine and Israel, um, there is this huge wall that reminds me of the walls around San Quentin Prison um, that's been built, security wall, if you will, um, in parts between Palestine and Israel, enormous high concrete wall, sometimes a few places like little guard towers. And, um, you know, the problem is that the wall was put in many cases onto land that was olive groves and so forth. And there's a lot of graffiti on the, especially on the Palestinian side. In one part, there's this amazing painting of a huge olive grove that was removed. And it said, you can, you can cut down the trees, but you can never take the spirit of the olive grove from us. And there's this big picture of the olive grove. Um, and this is a photograph. And you can tell how large it is. It's like 15 or 20 feet across because there's a little car. If you look, the windshield in the bottom right-hand corner. And it's a peace dove. This is on, in Ramallah, I think, on the Palestinian side, wearing a flak jacket, that is to say, wearing a bulletproof vest with a little olive branch, perfect, an olive branch in her mouth. And I really love this image. I was so moved when I saw it because it said somehow, even in the difficulties of this world, which we all have in our life, this is what the Buddha's awakening was. He said, yes, there is dukkha, yes, there's difficulties, and yes, there is freedom. Yes, there's the freedom to love, to care, to tend, and no one can take that from you, no one. And perhaps that's what Labor Day is really about, is to be able to offer that from yourself to the world. So let's sit for a moment.
And I'd like us to end with a very simple chant, and then we'll go out into this beautiful evening. <clears throat> In Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.